right, so let's, uh, we're going to jump in and get started this morning. Uh, we're in session four, joy in knowing Jesus. Believers gain joy through knowing Jesus and living in obedience to him. We'll be in Philippians chapter three uh, this morning. We'll be focusing on verses eight to 21, so you can go ahead and get yourself there. Value. When I talk about value, what comes to mind? Money. Money. <laughs> Possessions. Possessions. Worth. Worth. Okay. When I say valuable, what comes to mind? Time. Time. Things that are important. I heard. Jewels. Jewels. Things that are important. Things that are important. Investment. I heard somebody in the back. Investment. Investment. chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he's reiterating his point. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. We're going to stop there for a second. Paul is talking about 
the people in Philippi who are being persuaded by those who think something else is more valuable than Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. As we come into chapter 3, he's been building this up. We just had that whole chapter 2 where he talks about who Jesus is. And we looked at that last week. This, he has that nice little uh, poem. And now we come here and he is talking about people in the church who think that there are other things besides Jesus that are more valuable. We get down here to the bottom, and he's talking about confidence. Because they're he's referring to issues where people have confidence in other things for salvation. Like, okay, it's great, you've got Jesus, but you also need this. Anybody know the group that was running around causing this problem, what they were called? Gnostics? Gnostics? No, Judaizers, yeah. Gnostics were causing problems too, but they were different problems. The, the Judaizers, the Judaizers were Jews out of Jerusalem. Paul was actually one of them. They did not believe in the church, but as the church began to succeed more and more, they started showing up at churches saying, okay, great, you have Jesus, Gentiles, but you need circumcision and you need to follow the law, all the rules and regulations. That's more valuable because of our heritage and the traditions of the Jewish community. And Paul is writing this to the church of Philippi to say it's not. Now let's look at something real quick. The people that are causing this problem in the church, this is what Paul calls them, dogs. He says, look out for the dogs. He calls Evildoers. He refers to people who are saying, you need more than Jesus. You need something else as evildoers. They are people who mutilate the flesh. These are people who say Jesus isn't enough. We have this, still have this problem today, don't we? Many churches out there have lists of things that you do or don't do. And if you don't do them, well, you know, you, you must not be a Christian. You, you're a very good Christian or whatever. And they have a, a sliding scale. Well, you, you, you only attain this level, right? Again, what does Paul call these people? Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Put that in the back of your mind, because as we go through the meat of what he's going to be talking about, these are the people. This is his feelings on those people. You want his opinion about them? <laughs> this is how Paul thinks of these people. Let's go on. He says that I was one of them. He says that if anybody had reason, I had more reason. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was a big deal in the, in the Pharisees' camp. That you had to be circumcised on the right day. Which was eight days after you were born. Of the people of Israel. He was, a, he was an Israelite. 
He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Why would that be a big deal? King David. No, David was, was um, um, uh, yeah, he was from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Where'd the first king come from? Saul. Saul, yeah. Where did he come from? He was Benjaminite, yeah. Saul was a Benjaminite. They were the only ones that stayed with the Jews. The tribe of Judah and Benjamin were the two that made the southern kingdom. All the rest of them were part of the northern kingdom, and they fought each other. So he was, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a prosecutor, a persecutor of the church. Remember, Saul's conversion, he was going from town to town, hunting down Christians and dragging them out and having them stoned. In all likelihood, in the book of Acts, when they stoned Stephen, there was a young man standing with all the cloaks when the men took him off to throw stones. They put him at the feet of the young man overseeing it. It was all likelihood Paul. It is, there's evidence from other things that it was Paul that stood there and orchestrated the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Can you imagine? This is Paul. He was a he was persecutor. Uh, as to righteousness, under the law, he was blameless. He did everything. He tied the mint. He followed all the restrictions dietarily. Went to all the meetings that he was supposed to. Gave money the way he was supposed to. Did all the right things. Wore the right clothing with all the little tassels and whatnot. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In comparison to those that are coming in the churches and saying that you need more than Jesus, I was, I was the worst. And I count it all lost now. That's Paul. That's his standing. So here, that's our comparison. People on the left that have got all these rules, regulations, and everything. You want to be a Christian, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. All right, comment or question? Go ahead. It's kind of like how the Pharisees had all the laws for Judaism. They're trying to set those same rules and restrictions for Christianity as well. Yes, they wanted... The problem was that the church was gaining all these Gentiles. Remember, Philippi. Remember when we started the book, we talked about Philippi. What did they not have in, in, in Philippi? Synagogue. They didn't have a synagogue. There were not enough Jewish people in Philippi to have a synagogue. So the church is majority Gentiles. So here come these Jewish believers. Y'all need to be Jews. Well, there weren't enough Jews in town to, for them to even know what being a Jew was. And they're teaching all this Jewish stuff. And Paul is writing that they are dogs. They're evildoers. They are mutilators of the flesh. So that's where we start. So that's our background to what he's going to do. So let's uh, jump right in. Now it's your turn. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. Somebody read that. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to my surpass to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Wow, that is just packed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have the setup that we just looked at. People showing up demanding that the Gentiles be more Jewish. I count everything as lost. The ultimate Jew. That's Paul. He's the ultimate Jew, and it's all worthless. He's trading it for knowing Christ. That's valuable. That's his value. Everything that he had before is worthless. It's rubbish, he says. Righteousness is gained. How did he say righteousness was gained? Knowledge of Christ. Wait a second. That's way too easy, right? <laughs> way too easy. But knowledge of Christ. Knowing Jesus is the greatest accomplishment. I don't know what, what, you've, what accomplishments you've had in your past. Some of you, I'm sure, have probably got a lot of cool accomplishments. Some major things. Um... You probably got certificates on your wall. I've got them in my office. Those are, those are important accomplishments. But the greatest accomplishment is knowing Christ. Now, see, this is where we as believers, and particularly since I don't know that anybody in here is a new believer in the last, uh, I don't know, five, ten years, probably even more than that. We, we, forget, we begin to forget this we begin to drift more into what Paul's complaining about. My accomplishments are, oh, I, 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 I taught this Sunday school class or that Sunday school class or this Bible study or I led a missions trip here or there. Or maybe I had a, a, a large outreach or, you know, we start putting other things and we think that's our greatest accomplishment. Particularly if we're doing it for Christ, though, that's a major accomplishment. But it's not, is it? We forget that just knowing Jesus, which means what's the best thing you can do? Read your Bible. Yeah. Come to Sunday school class, right? Here, listen to you. Yeah, listen to me. I don't listen to me. I listen to somebody else. But that's it. That's it. It's no, the, it's no comment. No comment. <laughs> but that's, that's our greatest accomplishment. This is why we put such an emphasis on are you reading your Bible? Have you read it through this year? Why? Because that leads to knowing. Oh, sure, you can just breeze through it. Okay, I did it. Check it off the list. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I've ever read my Bible through in a year. There's too much information. There's too much cool stuff. It takes me years to do it, to get from Genesis to Revelation, because I get sidetracked. I'm a little HDAD. And he's like, oh, that's cool. I, I want to know more about that. And then I'm, I run off and I've got a weeks-long study on some minor thing that I found that I didn't see the last time I read through it. And it's like, 
and then I look up and it's like, oh man, it's been three years since I started in Genesis. And it's, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but that's okay, right? Because it's knowing him is the greatest accomplishment. We need to remember we can only gain righteousness through Jesus. Ouch. That hurts. I can only do it through him and through him by knowing him, right? So all the things that I like to do, all the things that I do, they don't count for anything, do they? Not in terms of righteousness. It's funny because we, we put the emphasis on doing. The longer we're Christians, the more important the doing of things. Who remembers the story of Mary and Martha? Yeah? What did Jesus tell Martha? Be more like Mary. And what was Mary like? She was a servant. servant. She sat and listened. listened. Yeah, she sat at the feet of Jesus and listened. did. She sat there and listened. Martha was mad. Why? Because she wasn't helping in the kitchen. She wasn't helping in the kitchen. <laughs> she wasn't doing. It's because we keep forgetting what the greatest accomplishment is. He's the power of resurrection. Not what we do. Not who we know. Well, I guess in terms of him, we know him. He's the power. Single-minded devotion to Christ is the source of righteousness. <coughs> single-minded devotion to Christ. How single-minded are you? And you got other things you're devoted to? Paul's whole point is that our goal in life should be a resurrection in righteousness. That's, that's what we're driving towards. Not retirement. Not a bigger house. Not a bigger family. A resurrection in righteousness. That's our goal. Our lives should be driving us towards that. And the only way to get there is knowing Jesus. The last oh, probably 50, 80 years in American church, we have downplayed knowledge. And understanding theology and doctrine. When was the last time you, you took a class or you had somebody teaching on that? Oh, we, we slide it in in a sermon or a Sunday school class. Years ago, you know, back go back a hundred years, people would get together just to have them. They'd have a dinner party to discuss doctrine and theology. That would be the entertainment for the evening. They would invite um a, a preacher, the, one of the circuit preachers to a dinner with multiple guests. That would be the discussion. That would be the talk. There would actually be talks. People would, you know, you lived in a metropolitan area. 
The local museum would host talks or even debates. When was the last time you went and sat in a debate just to hear both sides of the argument? That wasn't political. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't, we, we don't do it anymore. We, we have, in the last 50 years, we've become dumb in terms of scriptures. We show up, we want a little entertainment and a quick sermon, and we're out. Got things to do, places to go. You don't come here for a quick sermon. Well, no, no. Chris, yeah, if you want a quick Sunday school, you're out of luck, too. Yeah. I'm cut from that same bolt of fabric. We have forgotten that the goal of the Christian life is our resurrection in righteousness. We want to be righteous to be with God. And the only way that we do that is through the singular devotion to Christ, which means knowing him, spending time getting to know him. We need to quit trying to earn God's favor through our good works. We think that we can do that. If we're just busy enough, if we do enough, then we'll earn his favor. We get caught up in that. And I think that the evangelical church has moved that way in the last 50 years and away from knowing him and doing that. Comments, questions? All right, let me illustrate my point. Because I don't think I've beaten it enough yet. <laughs> Anybody know what this is? Not a picture of Jesus. Okay, it's a picture of Jesus. But or it's you, a rep of what they think of Jesus. Right, but does anybody know what that actually is? I see a crystal ball. Yep, you're right. There's a crystal ball. We're talking about value and what is valuable. This is Salvatore Mundi. Anybody know what that means? Savior something of Earth? World. world. Savior of the world. It's Italian. This is a famous painting <coughs> by Leonardo da Vinci. Not to us, huh? <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci painted this circa 1500. It is the most expensive painting in the world of Jesus. Well, well all time. It last sold at auction for $450.3 million. Because people want to know Jesus, right? But this is how they think you know Jesus. You, you, you buy famous artwork, famous painting. This painting is valuable because of its representation of Jesus. But is that what he really looked like? He looks very feminine. He looks very yeah, feminine? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Does I, was, it, I was thinking it was Mary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You might be right. This is, like it, it doesn't show up well on the, on the projector. But you can, you can Google it. Salvatore <laughs> Mundi. Do you know him better from having seen this? <laughs> Where do you find a picture of Jesus? You know? Yeah, you do. In Isaiah, there are certain readings that describes what Jesus looks like. Yeah. It's painted for us in words. Because if you have a picture of me, you don't know me, do you? No. No, you don't. You need to talk to me. You need to find out my past. You need to find out about my family. You need to know what I've done, where I've been, right? That's how you know somebody. 
granted, there are people that will see a picture and order the girl from the catalog and get a mail order bride. They don't tend to work out very well, do they? <laughs> because they don't know each other, right? Getting to know somebody means you, you, you need to know them. You have to find out information about them. You have to study them. This doesn't do anything for us. We don't know Jesus any better by seeing this painting. People are spending $450 million for this painting because of what it means to them. But that's not true. That's not how we get to know him. That's not the kind of knowledge we're talking about. Owning this painting doesn't make you more righteous, does it? Nope. Showing up at church doesn't make you more righteous either. It's not until you get to know him, which means you've got to spend some time in that book, whether it's on your phone, a physical Bible, just listening to it, somebody reading it, study. Yeah. You also need to spend time talking to him and listening to him. Yeah, we gotta we gotta listen for sure. It's a personal relationship. All right. Comment or question? Going, going. All right. So here we go. Philippians chapter three, twelve through fourteen. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I have not already obtained, Paul says. This is Paul. Wrote most of the New Testament. And if he doesn't think that he's obtained, what makes us think that we have? This is a guy who had the encounter of a lifetime with Christ on the road to Damascus. It was so profound, it changed his direction 180 degrees in life. It was so profound that he stopped persecuting the church and put himself up to be sacrificed for it. How's that for a flip? Mm -hmm. To go from being the killer to the killee. But I haven't obtained it. Here's what he's talking about. Sanctification. It's one of those big church words that in the last 50 years has kind of been swept away and we don't talk about because, well, it's a big word and it's too complicated and we don't care, really. Uh, we don't, so we don't talk about it. But sanctification begun. That's what Paul says. Paul says, i got to continue to grow towards Christ. Are you growing towards Christ? Or are you stagnating? You're not moving forward. You're not moving back. You're kind of just treading water. You ever tread water? Yes. It's exhausting. Yes. And it's fruitless. Unless all you want to do is keep your head above water. It's good for staying alive. But for how long? Because you're just wasting energy. 
and accomplishing nothing. You're not moving forward. You're not moving back. You're not getting to the side of the pool. What we need to be doing, we need to be working on holiness. See, that's what sanctification is. It's our movement from where we are towards God, which means we have to become more holy. It's not that we are holy because we do these things. It's we're becoming more holy. We're becoming more Christ-like in our actions. It's not legalistic rule following. I can't stress that enough because that's what the Judaizers were doing, right? They were showing up and saying, you need to be more Jewish. You need to eat this way, dress this way, act this way. You need these symbols on your doors and stuff. Were those things good things? Sure, why not? They didn't hurt anything. But did they make you more holy? No. See, God will not love you more or less based on the things you do. See, we get this mindset usually when we're children because we get in trouble. And so we assume that mom doesn't love us because she spanked our bottoms because we stole cookies or whatever it was that we did, right? So we assume that, that it's a matter of love. It's an issue of acceptance. It's an issue of, um, it's an issue of being in the right with that individual. Hmm? Validation. Validation. There you go. Yeah, and we learn from a small, from a young age, because that's how you train children to obey and to do things. The problem is, is that it, we connect it with love, and the, the fact of the matter is, is God has already loved us as much as possibly could be done, because He sent His Son to die and pay our penalty. How much more could He love us? What else does He have to offer? He won't love us more or less. So it's not a matter of a legalistic rule following. That's not what we're talking about. It's a true changes in our heart towards sin and others. Do we love others? See, there's a lot of others in the Bible, isn't there? A lot of one anothering, love one another, all, all that. So much, I mean, if you take all the Ten Commandments and all the laws, they boil down to two things. Loving God and loving others. Not just following the rules for the sake of following the rules. We, we need to change our hearts. If you have somebody you can't stand, you need to start praying for them. Because you're the problem. You Your attitude towards them needs to change. I say you have to pray for yourself, too. Oh, yeah, you have to pray for yourself. But when you start praying for them, your attitude towards them changes. 
we need to look at ourselves and say, where's the problem? Instead of looking out there and saying, where's the problem? Because we're the problem. See, that's where it's, it's us. Because the only thing we can change is ourselves. We can change our attitudes, our actions. And the only way they change is by knowing Christ more. And he gets a hold of something and you're like, there's nothing worse than when the Holy Spirit's working on you in a, in, on a single issue. And he beats, well, at least he does me. Maybe you're, maybe you're not as dense and blockheaded as I am. He beats me stupid with it. It'll be every time I turn on the radio, every sermon I hear, every conversation with somebody will revolve around this thing. and be like, okay, okay, I get it. And he's like, no, you haven't gotten it because you haven't done anything about it yet. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not alone in that. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's a true change in our heart. Perfection, not goodness, is God's requirement. Legalistic rule following is goodness. It's me doing it and all that. It's not a real change in me it's an outward sign of whatever and it's usually driven by pride oh look at what i have done i've spent my whole life not going to the movies Ooh, i'm a good person god's not interested in goodness god is interested in perfection zero sin oh well now i don't like that idea you're stepping on toes now yeah yeah i know i've gone to meddling Two false teachings are found in the church, particularly today, that are contrary to the gospel. The first is the self-righteousness of the legalist. Oh, look at what I'm doing. Look at how, and it may not be the individual, it's the whole church. Look, this is what we stand for. You know, you go to their website and they list off what they're for, or they're against. We're, we're against these things, and all that. And that's self-righteous. Legalism. The problem is, is the pendulum is swung. So you've got those churches on this side, and the pendulum is swung to the other end, which is the self-centered libertarians. And they're like, we do whatever we want to do because we're free in Christ. And so they've gone the other way, and they're all, well, I can do whatever I want. God will accept me. Therefore, I can... Huh? I said that was Bart Simpson. Yeah. I, well, you know, God, God forgives sin, right? So uh, I, I do what I want. I want to sleep around. That's great. If I want to do whatever, um, ridiculous. We're going to see that when we get to the Church of Corinth, because they're proud of the way that they're living. Sons having sex with uh, their mothers and, or stepmothers and. It's so disgusting. Paul is like, absolutely. Yeah, that's the other side to this. And we're living in a world that is swung that way. God is okay with me being gay or LGBTQ or whatever the latest thing is. I can be that. And God will accept me. And the church should accept me because it's all about love. And the legalist over here says, no, you can't do anything. No fun, sir. That's not godly, right? And they, they, they got the long, sad faces. You, you, you know people like this, right? They look absolutely miserable, and you look at them and go, why would I want to be in that church? 
Neither of those are right. Because the goal is to act more like Jesus. And the hope is to find him, to know him better, right? Neither one of those will lead you to him. You won't get to know him better in either one of those because you're too busy focused on yourself. A comment, question. I know I've taken the meddling. <laughs> Some of y'all might have come from one of those churches. And yes, I'm criticizing. I have, an, I have an experience with the um, more the libertarian side. Mm -hmm. My ex-husband and the woman he left me for both sat under Chris's teaching for many, many years. They, he divorced me, she divorced her husband because God wanted them to be happy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was like, wait a minute, where have you been for the last however many years it's amazing how we can we, we dress yeah. it up oh god god is love and we're loving and so therefore he wants us to be loved and yeah we we we, we dress up our sin really nicely yeah. yeah it's amazing you cannot argue for sin anymore that something is sin. well because god will accept me it's not yeah. the way it works perfection Perfection is what he expects, right? Anybody? All right, moving on. Here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 15 through 19. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I am often told, you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. I like that. Their, uh, we go? their God is their belly. The, the belly in the ancient world was the center of life. We, we tend to think of it as the heart, as the center of life. But for them, it was the belly. Um, everything, that's where it all happened. It's the center of their being. So here we go. The warning has been issued by Paul. First thing he points out is no easy way to maturity in Christ. I think the 1950s, with all the new inventions and conveniences that came out, the idea that you could just take a pill and you'd be better, as the advances in medicine were like doubling every every six months <coughs> through that period that we would find a cure for everything <coughs> that the science that science would find a way to make everything better and you would just have to you know you just take the pill and it's all good it was instant miracles we invented these devices that became cheap and everybody was buying them washing machines 
You no longer needed all day with a scrub board and soap powder to wash the family laundry. Throw it in the machine, turn it on. The machine got them clean. And then you could hang them on the line. And then they came out with the dryer. Oh, I don't even need to hang them on the line. Just throw them in the dryer. All the newfangled gadgets like electric ovens and burners. We don't have to go out and get wood or coal and fire it up. I mean, that was a pain in the foot, right? <laughs> Got to get the fire. You, you couldn't really regulate the temperature, you know, a little more, a little less, and change the temperature. But yeah, you gotta, so it took all day to cook. It's funny, we were sitting at dinner one night, and I don't know how the conversation got started, but we were trying to figure out um, what did they use to make cake before baking powder? So, being the nerds that we are, me and my wife were sitting there on the internet <laughs> looking up the history of baking powder, and it was actually fascinating, but it totally changed cooking dramatically from what they did before. Now, people at home, it's why people only bought cakes from shops back in the day. You know, maybe your grandparents. So what did some, they use? Huh? <laughs> so what did they use? Uh, I remember what it was. Do you remember? Well, they, yeah, I mean, it was the part of inventing baking soda bicarbonate. They used that before that. Before the, that, they had to use yeast. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just one of those off thing. But people, you, you wouldn't, because it took so long to get it right, and you had to let it rise and all this, you only bought cakes, you went to the shop to buy them. A professional had to do it. Because the science behind it was so difficult, but then they invented baking powder. And that meant you could bake the cake at home. And you could do it in short order. And then we invented stoves that had graduated temperatures. And we could control that and get the right environment for cooking. And so it didn't take so long. You didn't need all day. And somewhere in the 50s, uh, they came out with frozen meals because now people had refrigerators and freezers. Actually, uh, we were watching that. It was uh, the food that made America. Uh, what was the name of the company? Bird's Eye. They were the first frozen food company. It's fascinating how the guy invented that and teamed up with, um, I can't think of the woman's name now. But he teamed up with somebody else who was a big food company and all that. If you've never seen Food That Made America, that whole series is awesome. You can learn where Kellogg's came from and stuff. Actually, pizza was really interesting. But there became convenient foods. And so life got easier. And in the 50s, everything got easier because there was money. People had money. There was disposable income as the GIs had come back from the war and the military industrial complex. We kicked that baby up in the high gear because of the Russians. We had to keep up with them and things were rolling along. And so there was money flowing as new inventions and new machines and new all sorts of stuff. And life got easy. Lawn mowers. You didn't have to go out there with a the little sickle and cut the grass. <laughs> Anymore, you just push my way. Everybody was doing that. That'd be Sunday morning. Everybody out there mowing the lawn in a shirt and tie. Yeah. I have pictures of my grandfather. He's mowing it in a shirt. Who mows the lawn in a shirt and tie on a hot sun? I'm like, dude, I want the least amount of clothing I'm cooking out here. And it's a, you know, it's an electric lawnmower with that speed blade. Yeah. Yeah. But we brought it into the church, 
And we thought that there's an easier way to Christian maturity. And churches in the 50s began with programs. They had started inventing all these church programs. If you do church, look at church history. You know, there were church organizations that would do things, auxiliary this and that, <coughs> that would oversee missions and all that. But the church started having programs, and people got involved in the programs and replaced on a study of the scriptures with those programs. You, you, you fast forward to today. We have people that only show up church when it's their turn to teach in Sunday school. It's like, where were you? It was your, not your month. <coughs> well, I didn't need to be there. I only need to be there when it's my turn to do my, my bit. See, we, we come up with this idea that there's an easier way to Christian maturity. It's being involved in things and doing things. Awana started in 1950. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, there you go. I didn't know that. Okay. So, uh, my point. That's right. It's not that it's not a great program either. I did it as a kid. What we need to be doing is, is following the example of Jesus himself. Jesus is God the Son. And you know what? He stopped and would take time and go out into the wilderness and spend time communing with the Father. If he needed time, how much more do we need? And he perfectly knows the Father. I don't think we have any idea. We barely scratched the surface. And here's the bigger problem. We often become an enemy of the church because we get on these kicks. Oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. If you really want to be, if you really want to be on the inside, this is what you need to do. Used to be you would join groups in the church. Well, it's moved beyond that now. Now it's, well, you, you gotta be on this particular diet. Or you gotta be doing this particular health. Uh, thing. Health is the new um, God. Yeah, the new God, the new fad in the church. And that if you're really a Christian, if you're really godly, then you're going to sniff this, eat that, or not eat this, or you're, you're going you're to sit and do this thing, rub this on you, whatever. There, there's all sorts of stuff out there. And it's funny because you start looking at like church websites and they're pushing these products. And I'm like, what in the world do they have to do? You know, it's like you can't even find anywhere where you're like, hey, can I get a Bible? <laughs> nope, but I can get you this oil or this ointment or this uh, food. We got a problem there. We've become the enemy of Christ because we're putting that stuff ahead of him. We need the church for its fellowship, its encouragement, and its strengthening. And this is what Chris is preaching on. We are in a time in history where we are under attack by the world. For the last 50 years, the world has accepted us. We've been acceptable in society to be Christians, but that is not the case of most of the world. Go back to when America was founded. Most of them were fleeing Europe because they couldn't practice the way they wanted to, the Puritans and all those groups. They were under persecution in Europe because they weren't part of the Church of England. They weren't part of the Roman Catholic Church. They had rejected them. 
they had gotten caught up in the Reformation, where it was going back to Scripture itself and not the organization and the hierarchies that determine our lives. It's what God's Word said. And so they had to flee. They had to come here where they could practice the way they wanted to. We need the church because fellowship is good. That's why solitary confinement in prison is punishment. Hmm. If solitary confinement was a good thing, they would not be putting the really bad prisoners in it, would they? <laughs> we need fellowship, but we seem to think that we're an island, and we don't. If you think that you can do it on your own, I will be happy to lock you in a room all by yourself for a few months. And when you come out, we'll see what you're like. Well, you won't be better. You kind of experienced that. You know, well, with COVID, yeah. yeah. We need encouragement. There isn't one of us that does not need encouragement. To hear that we're doing well or what, how we could do better, we need that because that's part of strengthening. That's what the church is for. That's what we do. We need to be together. So Paul is issuing this warning to the church at Philippi to beware. Remember, these Judaizers are coming around and they're trying to break it all up. And they're trying to get everybody to just be Jews and live like Jews. Comment, question. Alright, last part. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Somebody read those for us. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we will await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lonely body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Got to go out on a high note. Our citizenship is assured. It isn't all that stuff that we do. It's not all the rules that we keep. It's Christ. Now remember, why would this be a, uh, a high note for the church at Philippi? Why was citizenship an issue for them? They weren't in Italy. Right. They were Romans that were kicked out of Italy, and they were granted all the rights of being citizens of Rome without being in Rome. They needed more space in Rome. There wasn't enough, and the emperor said, go live here, and we'll give you everything, which means you got tax write-off. You didn't have to pay taxes because you're a citizen of Rome. Just like if you lived in the city in Rome, you live in Philippi, everything was good. And they clung to that, and Paul is using that as an example Citizenship in heaven is assured. Roman citizenship, not as good as a heavenly citizenship. Guess what? That's also true of your American citizenship. And if you were in Afghanistan a few months ago, your American citizenship didn't do you any good anyway. It isn't about what rights and things we have as Americans. It's about the rights that we have as a citizen of heaven under the lordship of God himself the thing that we get with our citizenship that you don't get with a Roman citizenship or with an American citizenship it comes with transformation that heavenly body that Christ has gotten that resurrected body Uncle Sam doesn't offer that does he? He doesn't even offer uh, health care <laughs> 
<laughs> He's offering a perfect body for citizenship in heaven. That's where we need to be focusing. But that also comes with the requirement, being subject to Jesus. We need to be under him. We need to be doing what it is that he wants us to do. And it isn't rule following, is it? It isn't all these rules and things that people draw up. It's loving other people, which means I've got to change my heart. We've got to look at the most annoying person that we cannot stand and say, Lord, help me to love them for you. Whoever that person is, maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's a, well, I wouldn't call him a friend, an associate of yours. Maybe he's a friend of a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe you got one of those family members that just drives you bonkers and you're avoiding them. You're not going to spend Thanksgiving with the rest of the family because you can't stand this individual. Guess what? That's not Christ-like. Nope. need to start praying now. Change me so that I can deal with them. I've told this story before, but when I was a coach in, for a high school volleyball team, we had a sister school, another Christian school that was of the same, just like us, but they were in Seoul, and we were in Pyeongtaek, and um, they, we, we were the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> we were treated poorly, we were looked down upon because we were the small little rice paddy school. Myself and uh, the other coach, we got together before the school year started, and we said that we wanted to have the right attitude as coaches towards that school and their team so that our players would model it and have the right attitude towards them and that they would change their view of us. Well, we prayed. We, would, we prayed it often, we, and... Guess what? That school didn't change. The coaches were still obnoxious. Their players were rude and all that. And the season progressed. But our attitude towards them changed. It was us that changed as we viewed them through a more godly lens, which was surprising. You would think that I would know that, right? <laughs> Knowing it and experiencing it are two totally different things. And as our attitude towards them changed, we prayed for them more and us less. And we stopped praying that God would change them, but that would let us be an example to them. We got to the final game, and we were playing for the championship, and we were playing them. Of course. Which, right, which you wouldn't expect. We won. We beat them so badly that the final point of the last game of the last set for the championship, they just sat down on the floor. They were so broken, but they had treated us so poorly, they didn't shake hands when they walked off the court with us because it wasn't right. I mean, this is another Christian school, but we were the, we were the, the little rice paddy school. How dare you win? How dare we win? Don't we know who they were? Because they had a lot of kids who were diplomats and stuff like that from the different countries and all that. They, they had much better, but it's not. It's being subject to Jesus. When we submit ourselves to him and we allow him to rule in our lives, we change. The world doesn't change. It's funny. We want the world to change so that it's better for us. We never think that we need to change to make the world a better place. 
Mother Teresa put it this way. This life in light of eternity will be nothing more than a bad night at a cheap hotel. <laughs> We're the ones that need to change. The hotel, you're spending one night at a hotel. The hotel ain't changing. It is what it is. You knew that when you were registered, when you came in. Change your attitude. All right, a couple of things before we go. Faith in Christ is the only way to gain a right standing before God. If there are things you're doing because you think that, that they're godly and they bring you closer to Christ and you're just doing them for that, that isn't doing you any good. It's Him and it's knowing Him. We need to realize that, recognize it, and we need to act on it. Secondly, faith opens the door for ongoing spiritual sanctification. Sanctification is the process of us becoming like Christ. And that's what we need to be working on. When we put out our faith and say, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know this is what God wants me to do because it's the right thing to do. And we start doing it, we begin to grow in our sanctification. That's what we need to be working on. Not the blind rule following and, and things doing that we often get caught up in. Let's pray. Father, we know your son is the most valuable thing in the world. We know that knowing him is what gives us strength. It's what gives us standing in your court. Lord, help us know him better. Help us to chase after knowing him. And allowing that to work through our lives so that we can have impact in the world by being more godly as we reach towards you. Help us to do that this week in Jesus' name. Amen.